Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Joshua Jackson. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you're in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Each week on this programme, I'm joined by a different leadership figure from the world of business, education, politics, sports, or even from local communities, in the aim of truly discovering who those people are that get up every morning and make this country work. We get their take on the current economic and political landscape of the UK and discuss everything from traditional manufacturing to shifting public opinions and, of course, the success and the innovation that makes it all worthwhile in the end. On today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Gowith, director of Gareth Hogarth, the last manufacturer of smoking tobacco in the UK, with a long and distinguished history of providing quality products to consumers. Without further ado, Chris, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. Not a problem at all. Um, it's great to, to have you on the show. Really interesting um, you know, background and, and company history you've got, but um, obviously the first thing we should talk about is um, business disruption, everything over the last 18 months, um, COVID, and well, how's it all been? Yeah, um, I guess probably like many other companies, is how it's been, uh, chaos <laughs> um, for the most part. Um, having said that, I think, I think we did quite well. We've been quite lucky until uh, recently, um, sort of we are, what, mid August now, 2021, we, we've managed to sail through almost with no infections and no disruption at all until uh, roughly about six weeks ago uh, when people started uh, watching football in bars and we started to get a couple of infections, um, which has caused some amount of disruption to uh, production and things like this. But I think when you go back to the start, um, I think when we reflect on COVID and business uh, and the government does its review and everything like this, it was a lot of the disruption, I, I certainly from our point of view, was to do with messaging. You know, it was to do with what are we supposed to be doing? What are we allowed to do? And what happens if something happens or what happens if the worst happens and who's liable for what and all these sorts of things. Um, I mean, I remember within the first, I think, two or three weeks of the, the proper full lockdown, I remember one of my staff coming to me saying, Chris, can can you write me a letter to say I'm okay to come to work because the police are stopping people coming to work? You know, uh, things like this, which, uh, you know, it's, it seems a bit crazy now, doesn't it, thinking like that. But at the time, that's that's what was happening. And, you know, before it was... Uh, clarified that, you know, manufacturing businesses could stay open and things like this. We didn't know if the police were going to come through the door and shut us down. Um, again, seems a bit dramatic, but that was the sentiment in, in that sort of hysteria and panic that we all experienced at the time. Um, and so we did things like, uh, you know, we had some, some um, more uh, aged members of staff um, and, and other people that were shielding, 
and it was simply a case of, okay, guys, we don't know what to do. Uh, you know, we, there's this furlough thing. You, you need to go home, um, and we'll we'll figure it out from there. And so I think we sent home a large part of the production force for about three weeks, while the rest of us stayed and figured things out. Um, I mean, luckily we had quite well, uh, quite we were quite well stocked, so we managed to keep you know selling things. But you know, you look back now over the last two years, you think there's been quite a few moments where you think, are you going to be here next year? Are we able to sell stuff? Are we able to make stuff? Um, and so we've, you know, we we we've we've come through it okay. But the last, even towards the end now, this last sort of well, hopefully the end six to eight weeks. It has just been, you know, people isolating because they, they have the virus, people isolating because other members of their family and they're staying in the same house together have to. And I think the most disruptive thing with it, it's not like a holiday that you can plan for. It's mm-hmm. just people disappearing. And two weeks ago, I had eight members of staff walk out in the same day because of COVID. Wow. Not mm-hmm. all because of COVID here, mm-hmm. but because of COVID-related things. Yeah, it was some people that were where we had we had an infection and a group of we said to people, look, you know, if you've been in contact with this person, go and get tested. And of course, some people went and got tested, even though there was no way that they'd been in contact with them, mm. or very unlikely to. And then they get told they can't go back to work until they get the test result. And then other people, totally uh, by chance, whose other family members in the same household report an infection on the same day, and mm. then they walk out. And then other people saying, well, I've got, a, you know, family members that are in hospital and I've got to go and see them because they're severely ill or had an operation or something. Mm. I'm sorry, I have to go and get tested now. And suddenly everyone just evaporated, mm. <laughs> um, uh, leaving uh, the handful that was left, uh, you know, doing a lot, a lot more than um, we usually do. You've, you've really and, covered uh, the, the, the chaos there of, of the last 18 months, you know, especially the initial just everybody locked down through to the, the, the pandemic of the last six weeks. And do you yeah. think that there was enough government support there? Do you think that the government should have been doing more to sort of uh, help businesses survive and to, to keep the message clear? Or do you actually think that maybe towards the end of this, it was a little bit more of people taking advantage? Mm. Uh, you know, we've seen both. Um, we've, we've seen people sort of jumping up and down here saying, hooray, hooray, I've been pinged in the early time and then realizing that, well, you know, there's only so much money we can give you or, or, or not or whatever the, the current situation was and then became less appealing to them. Mm. Um, I think the messaging has been fairly atrocious um, throughout. You know, it's been, a, it's been a difficult time for the government, but... I almost think it's been harder for the businesses uh, and for those people caught up in it. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, from a personal point of view, um, you know, my other half was in Switzerland and I was here for like eight months, Mm. you know? um, So there's, uh, yeah, I mean, the messaging's not been great. In terms of support, I think that, you know, we haven't, apart from the furlough scheme, we haven't claimed any grants. We haven't claimed anything. Mm. Um, We've, We've, we've always sort of stood on our own feet um, and be self-sufficient. So I can't really comment too much on that. Sure. But um, I think there has been an element of uh, of the taking advantage. I remember we had to 
we've done various rounds of furlough on sort of group levels. Mm. I remember, and it might have been a little bit, you know, in jest, but someone turning around saying, well, you can't furlough me now. The weather's wrong. Well, it's the wrong time of year to be furloughed or whatever it was. It, it wasn't last summer yeah. um, when it was really hot in, you know, was it May, June or something? And being furloughed then was great because everyone was sat out drinking beer inside in their gardens and basically getting paid their full salary more or less for doing it. Yeah. Uh, and then when you get into the winter and people are being furloughed, they're, they're just somehow not quite as keen. That's the first time I've ever had anybody use that excuse. Um, that's that's very much a new one. And, uh, and I, I, I've heard a lot uh, from business leaders across the country on their, their yeah. own and their particular Which, circumstances. Our lot can be quite special. <laughs> that's, that's, that's absolutely brilliant way of putting it. Um, and from your own sort of personal perspective here as well, do you think that you know, you've had to, to sort of stand up and, and be a different style of manager during this time, different style of leader? Do you think you've I had think, to yeah, adapt absolutely. as much as everybody yeah. else? I think um, actually, I mean, from I think for me again, it's probably. I mean, I think the business leading and the personal side. You know, there's obviously a lot of crossover because it, it obviously the personal side reflecting how you lead and try and influence people. I suppose. I think so. I think you know when it's when people are, it's it's not it's sad to see, and it's you know we can't just keep paying people full salary to be off for two three weeks at a time mm. when most of the time there's been nothing wrong with them. You know, they are they are just self-isolating and they've been absolutely fine with no symptoms or anything. And just like most companies, you know, you're following the guidelines and, and paying what what the guidelines or what, what you should be paying. And I think it's, it, it, you know, it maybe made me a bit more, um, not that I wasn't before, but it just highlighted that compassion of, well, look, you know, we're going to send you guys home and some of you might be able to pay the rent, some of you might not be able to pay the rent. Mm sort of thing and I, I just think it's you know people being off sick is is sort of one thing and there's almost more discretion there in in the remuneration side of that um of course but when it's on mass it, it it's a bit more you almost feel you have to be a bit more hard line with it because you just can't just justify just increased overheads you have to put the business first as well as try and make sure that and take that long-term view that's a good way Um, yeah i think i think i think that's a good way of putting it it's it's you don't want to put the business first in some circumstances Mm. and it kind of hurts to have to do that um a bit, yeah, and that absolutely, it's um, it is one of those things that without the the business surviving, then everybody's going to be hurt more in the long run, regardless. Yeah. And I it, think a lot of that was people lost sight of that somewhat um, with all of the support and all of the the measures and the talking of, of furlough schemes to try and keep everybody going. But there are still overheads for business runners, especially manufacturers like yourself yes. that that have much higher overheads than let's say a, uh, a digital marketing marketing agency. They do and mm. and and you know it, it sort of then brings you on to that um similar sort of conversation then about you know maybe some changes that that you made but they were made because you have to get used to doing without people. Mm. And I know I've spoken to, you know, quite a few other um, people who, who run companies um, locally around here and, you know, another conversation where, you know, when you, you know, I always say to people, you know, when they say, oh, can we take a, I want to go to Australia or somewhere, I want to take a three, four week holiday. And I'm like, well, that's fine. As long as your work is maybe covered, it's mm-hmm. unusual, it's rare, but if you have to, 
Um, maybe you've got family that live far away. Maybe you've got to make a concession within a company. And I always say to people, well, that's fine, but just don't forget if we can do without you for a month, we might be able to do without you for 12. Of course. that's uh... Because, you know, you, you know, no company wants to be carrying dead weight or people that are you know, important in their own right and to value those people. And so if people think they can sort of either be excused or have to be excused because of something like a pandemic, yeah. it, it just only makes you think, well, what are we going to do if these people don't come back or if, you know, for whatever reason? Or, and, and that has then shaped and, and resulted in redundancies. Yeah. It has here um, because you realize that, you know, we're going to have to find a smarter way of working. Mm. Um, and that is often then found in software uh, and better process, mm. uh, things like this, um, and just job sharing a little bit. And, you know, so we have been through that pain of making people redundant as well, um, which is, you know, obviously never never a great thing. Um, but maybe, you know, we said in this company a long time ago when this started that, you know, those companies that come out the other side of this and have made changes are probably going to come out stronger. And that is, you know, seems they, to be the case across the board that uh, you know, there have, have been changes, there have been different methods of, of working and uh, as I say, with the, the start of this sort of leadership style as well, but it is going to make people more resilient moving forwards. Mm-hmm. But uh, obviously, given your um, you know particular industry, um, uh, you know tobacco production, it hasn't just been COVID that has been the issue. Really, it's been over no. a number of years that things that have been sort of hitting the industry and hitting again UK manufacturers. Um, you know, now mm. we're just starting to see the impacts of Brexit, um, shipping uh, issues, haulage issues, as well as mm-hmm. changing changes in legislation. Um, yeah. It hasn't been an easy few years for you, really. No, it hasn't. I mean, um, you know, there's been the tobacco products directive that's been sort of rolling on for for quite a number of years in, in different variations. And, um, you know, these obviously had been sort of born out of the European Union, um, you know, back then. And then we've obviously, as a country, inherited, you know, a lot of European um, directives into, into UK law and things like this. So a lot of things have rolled on. Uh, and you know some of this legislation uh, is is hard to meet for small companies, and um, you know we we do try and work as closely as we can with um, you know HMRC and, and mm. you know, other areas of government where we can. Um, a lot of this regulation is to do with um, combating illicit trade of tobacco, which uh, I, I think. I think for the most part, most people and most of the population would think it's a good thing. You yeah. know, we don't want illicit tobacco here. You don't know what's in it, like with any restricted goods. Um, it's it loss of money for mm. the exchequer. And it's obviously loss of money for those businesses that are effectively being defrauded um, as well. And uh, but w- what that comes with is uh, a, a system that is – Sort of has really shaken the whole industry um, right across Europe, uh, and it's a system that effectively requires uh, currently every packet of cigarettes or hand rolling tobacco to have a unique serial number on it. Mm. So, you know, if if anyone you know, listening to this smokes or whatever, or you, you see some cigarette packet in the street, 
that will have a code on it like no other in the entire European continent. Uh, and those codes have to be purchased off the government or a government, depending on where it's being sold. And they have to be marked on the packs and it has to be traced all the way through the supply chain effectively to where that packet was purchased from. Mm. Uh, and the data within inside this is incredible. I mean, it's, they know what machine it was made on, who made it, when, who bought it, has it been paid for? And that's the key point. They want to start using this as a sort of, um, you know, a reinforced, has the duty been paid on this product or not, and a way to identify illicit products. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard for an illicit trader to uh, buy a code off a government because you can only buy that code if you are a registered manufacturer. Absolutely. Uh, so it's a, it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting project, and um, I think to be to be fair to HMRC and, and the British government, they've done quite well with it, uh, and they've worked very hard with it. But the cost to us is enormous. Um, you know, those products at the moment, as I mentioned, that the hand rolling tobacco, which is we, we make pipe and hand rolling mainly. We don't make any cigarettes here, and. Uh, I mean, it takes us probably 25% extra time to produce that same hand rolling mm. um, than when before we had this scheme. It seems like uh, a, a huge cost to bear, for, especially for a smaller manufacturer like yourself. You know, there's when is. you have the international firms, your British American Tobaccos, your Philip Morris's, that's mm. easier to adapt to these wholesale legislation changes and these increased costs. And has there been the support there for you as a uh, a more luxurious no. and um, no, none, mm. none. I mean, you 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 get, uh, I suppose, a, a nod of sympathy across the table um, from those, those big companies. I mean, we sit around the table uh, with HMRC and uh, the big four tobacco companies on mm. on a very regular basis. Um, their, um, you know, their their ability to adapt to this is also very expensive but mm-hmm. proportionally compared to their profit it is a drop in the ocean yes and they're running on full automation where you're basically going to split open a production line and insert a new module which is more or less going to take care of mm. you know that part of the marking and the the pack aggregation and all this sort of thing um, for us we do everything by hand so mm-hmm. this is just another process that you're doing by hand Interesting. It's um, mm. yeah. When when you when you're doing everything in that at that, that scale, um, and you're doing it by hand, it really does add on a, a whole other level. But I suppose that really brings yep. you to your your niche. It is the the quality. It is the uh, the history that you have and the way yeah. that you've done things that's given you the company as it stands today. And whilst I'm sure there are many issues in having that tradition, being able, you know, having things that have been done this way, so that's the way we'll always do them. I'm sure it also gives you a sense of pride in in the product as well. It does. Yeah. I mean, you know, this company, um, it's it's funny because it's, it's reputation within, should we say, specialist tobacco on a global scale is, is way bigger than the actual company. Um, certainly, you know, customers of ours or consumers that, that have our products in other parts of the world, when they speak to us or maybe they have a bit of a comment or a complaint or whatever it is, they always speak to us like, you know, we're a massive company. Um, this idea that, well, we just we just want to place an order for something, um, but it might be half a container. Well, 
that might take us three months to make. Mm-hmm. For uh, a big tobacco company, they will literally push a button and a container will more or less drop out the back end of the factory. Um, you know, and so, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it does give you that pride. And I think what people like about our product is it actually has soul. Um, you know, that the quality of the, the leaf that we use is very high. Uh, we have to use much larger leaves often for a lot of our products, which are obviously more expensive, um, harder to find. Your your sort of mass-produced products are often produced with, certainly cigarettes, a, a lot cheaper leaf. Mm. Um, sometimes not even really leaf at all. It's sort of reconstituted stuff. Um, and I think people do like that. And actually, the products haven't they haven't intentionally changed over the last few hundred years. Mm. Uh, they, they sometimes change because the leaf is no longer there. So, for example, um, there was a, there's a type of leaf called a Latakia that you buy. It's a very sort of dark-smoked, strong-smelling uh, leaf. And um, I sort of feel, to me, it's sort of the charcoal of, um, of, uh, of, of tobacco leaf um, okay. for blends. Um, that used to come a lot from Syria, mm. and obviously not anymore. No. Um, now, that may well have changed uh, products that are heavy in last year may then seem a bit different now because things happen wars start droughts mm. happen and where product comes from does change and uh, and I think the other side that's quite interesting for us is that um, many of these tobacco companies and many of these blends that you'll see in supermarkets and such they might have about 20 to 30 different uh, types or um, sources of leaf in mm. them uh, and that's there to mitigate the natural changes from crop to crop. Mm. You know, it's a bit like wine. You know, you can have a good year, a bad year within the same vineyard. Of and that's mm. what we're a little bit like because um, we might only have two or three different types of high-quality leaf in our blends. Mm. So when there is a crop change, um, maybe you're going to see it more. Um and I, I think that's a, a sort of interesting point you've just raised there as well, given that, um, you know, you say things change with drought, with, um, mm. um, you know, the environmental conditions. And obviously, given the, the topics of conversation this year in, um, you know, now we're sort of looking ahead to COP26, there's issues with mm. worldwide shipping. Are you finding that there are changes going on across the industry when it comes to sort of what's available? Yes. Uh, I mean, we we are... We've had to source some slightly different things. Um, so the, if we just sort of jump to the uh, Brexit situation uh, slightly, we have to dive in and out of that, I think. Um, so the rules of origin um, that are implied to have a you know, preferential tariff between the UK and the EU on tobacco products, uh, are, are they're difficult. Um, so it's something like, uh, you know, you, you've got to have at least 10% wholly obtained material in your product if you're going to send it, you know, the other way mm. um, or whatever. Well, there isn't any leaf grown in the UK. And actually, European leaf is quite hard to get hold of. And Europe doesn't really grow enough leaf to supply, you know, the European smoking market. And I believe it actually sells quite a lot of its leaf to outside of the European Union. So we've had to source uh, leaf from Europe so that we can actually attempt, hopefully one day, to sell back to Europe. Mm. Um, And uh, we actually found some leaf in Poland, and it's it's really good leaf. 
uh, and, it, and it wasn't too expensive actually. And I think we've been very lucky to find it. And that will allow us to send stuff back to Europe eventually once we cross the transportation issues that I'll come up to shortly. Um, and uh, without that preferential tariff, you know, you're looking at, uh, I think it's a 74.9% import tariff. Well, that's... So yeah. this basically prices a lot of our European customers out the market, and it mm. obviously then depends on how their um, tobacco duties are calculated on top mm. of that. Yeah, the, so, the issues of getting things to and from the mainland as well, as you say, you're about to come onto it, plus those tariffs, plus then the extra costs of, of having to deal with yep. the uh, uh, the handmark stamping on each um, you know packet of tobacco yep. or, or, or products sold. It's It all adds up. It goes up, up and up. Mm. It goes up and up. You know, and, and that, that Polish leaf is, is quite interesting, actually. So, um, I mean, we've not been able to send really any product to the European market, which was a good market for us. Um, you know, it wasn't entirely keeping all the lights on, but it was uh, a really good chunk of our export market, which we're relying on more and more as a business. Um, you know, as the UK market sort of, smoking's always been decreasing at you know, 10% a year or, or whatever. And uh, you know, if you accept that, it's been like that for decades. Mm. Um, but the the, the, these these complexities of, of moving things around um, are getting really difficult. We, we've not sent anything to the EU since, I think, November last year. Um, we've got people queuing up to place orders. I think I have about four new distributors um, that we, we would like to talk to. And um, we, we can't send anything. Uh and and then the question is why? Why can't you send anything? Is it you know people talk paperwork? Oh, trust me, tobacco. You're used to paperwork. Paperwork is not the problem. Mm. Uh, clearing customs anywhere in the world, we're we're quite good at that now. Uh, the problem is physically getting the vehicles, um, and it's not so much just in the UK. It's actually convincing some company in the EU to maybe come and collect your products mm. because they deem the risk too high. Uh, and so we had a situation uh, with that Polish leaf where um, it took us, we, we bought it, we paid for it. It sat, I think, in Antwerp for uh, a few months uh, while they were looking for a, a trucking company to bring it here and eventually found um, a French forwarding agent that I think employed, I think it was a Romanian trucking firm to collect it from Antwerp and bring it here. Now, that forwarding firm didn't even realize they had to submit paperwork at the UK border mm. at any. So, you know, one afternoon you get a call. Uh, well, there's lots of emails flying around. Uh, the truck has been seized by police. Um, it's carrying tobacco and uh, people getting very worried about fines. And, and I think this is the thing. I mean, they literally turned up with no no customs clearance documents or anything. There hadn't been any customs entry made or anything. So I think a big part of this um, transport issue that seems to be going on between UK and EU is that actually on the EU side, they, they really don't understand Brexit at all. Uh, and we have similar experiences with, with, with other suppliers of um, actually finished tobacco products that we bring in and distribute for other people. And yeah, it seems to be a, you know, there was this thing called Brexit and it, it meant something not to do with the EU and now it's all finished. 
that's it, back to normal. And and it just seems to be a real lack of education on the EU side to understand what you have to do to come to the UK. And I'm more than certain that that would be reciprocated, that lack of knowledge the other way. But mm. the difficulty is is trying to get people to come here because obviously if they if they come to uh, the Lake, Lake District where we are to collect you know two or three pallets of tobacco, the chances of them getting stopped, you know, with because of paperwork and things like this, maybe in Calais, are probably higher than if they were just uh, carrying Kendall mint cake, for example. Okay, of course. Um, and so they don't want to take the risk of getting stopped and losing valuable driving time when they're already running very tight logistical operations. And I can imagine so, they're charging you a premium for the privilege of when they yeah. are able to pick up as well, which yeah. again, yeah. with mean, the previous statements, knock-on effect. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, but I don't. I mean, I, you know, whether this is a whether this is a, an unsolvable, never-ending problem of Brexit, I'm not sure. I hold that slightly glass half-empty view. I think that when when things are more understood, which I believe we understand them a lot better here. But once you can find decent partners to work with within the EU, I think a lot of these things will become a lot easier. Um, I'm not saying the costs are going to go down, um, because costs very rarely go down. But the cost is one thing, but the cost doesn't mean a lot when you can't physically move the goods at all. Of course, it's logistical teething um, problems at the moment. Um, you know, and again, yeah. you need to find yourselves those trusted partners. They need to trust you to make sure that you're doing everything above board as well. And exactly. then everybody moves from there. Um, yes. But it's not all sort of bad news for you at the moment. No. Um, you know, it's something that you've been looking to do is, is to move more further afield, to get, you know, away from just the, the sort of EU market or, or the British mm. market and, and start going you know, worldwide and and how's that so that's i mean i think sort of the the brexit thing has probably given us that that springboard slightly um so our big problem here is uh, production capacity um it never really used to be too much of a problem but since we started saying yes to more uh inquiries coming from overseas um we we've been fairly inundated with with uh, requests for for product and you know most months we're we're figuring out how on earth we're going to produce it and we're actually having to turn down and tone down some of the orders coming from non eu countries and um i have to say it has sort of played out a bit like the government maybe wanted um you know industry to do we've just looked elsewhere and we mm. found it you know the, we the, um, the global british vision the global, yeah, the global Britain thing, and and a company like this, where where you've really got this sort of best of British and something quite unique uh, going on with this this beautifully long pedigree trailing out behind it, um, and a company that's actually incidentally done very little marketing in the past, and, and we're trying to sort of you know develop our our sort of brand and our image of who we are because we want our main thing is we want people to become part of the journey a bit cliched i know but we want people to sort of be part of this um, heritage that we have um and get involved on social media and, and it's nice that actually myself and my sister uh, who actually runs a lot of the social media side you know the consumers anywhere in the world get to interact with the company owners mm. and talk about their products and actually that's that's worked out really nice and we enjoy doing it and um and 
we settle a lot of rumours on on social media as well because uh, there's always rumours out there about you uh, about your company. Um, but yeah, so I mean, you know, United States is uh, is is a is a fantastic um, country to to work with, and we've got some great great partners there, some new ones as well, uh, and things are going well. Um, I mean, whether any of the uh, the American uh, fan club will listen to this, uh, maybe hopefully, you know, we try and supply as much as we can. Uh, but the reality is, you know, a 20 foot container, we used to do 40 foot containers, used to just take just so long to fill mm. that no one really got any product. Um, they'd have to wait, you know, six months to get their um, products, which isn't great. Better to trickle it in and people have a, a smaller regular supply than just have one big thing dumped on the doorstep and everyone panic buys and things. But, you know, 20 foot container takes us, well, it, depending on what's in it, it can take us the best part of three months to put together. It's sold in eight days. Mm. Well, so a, 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 a very, very quick turnaround. And may I say for anybody as well that's, that's listening in to actually go and have a look at the um, Gareth Hogarth product range, the, the balls of twist tobacco, you really will be able to see the, the beauty of, the product yeah, and, and the like class an and the quality of the finish. Yeah, it's it really is something special, and it really by seeing that, it will really make you understand what Chris is trying to say when he's saying the time it takes to fulfil these orders is because the quality really is there, and it's something to be proud of. And you, and you can't automate a lot of these processes. Um, you really can't. I mean, things like that that twist tobacco, as the Americans call it, rope tobacco. You, you know, you've got to hand feed. You've got to almost iron the leaves out beforehand so they're flat. And you've got to hand feed and splice them onto the end of the rope leaf by leaf. Uh, it's incredibly laborious and time-consuming uh, process. And it actually requires quite a lot of skill from the operators to do it as well. And they make it look incredibly easy. Um, I'm told it. I've never tried it, but I'm told it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a skill to have. Um, and there's not many people, not many people making it. So, so United States, like I say, uh, a great um, place to be at the moment. Uh, we basically have um, perpetual orders uh, from United States for both the Gareth Hoggett and Samuel Gareth brands, more or less, which is great because if we've got any downtime, because let's say you can't send anything to the European Union, you're never going to be quiet. You've got um, some some people there that are just going to keep, you know, buying the product. Luckily, they enjoy it and they like interacting with us. But going the other way as well, China has been um, a big customer. Um, mm. Again, you can't really meet their demands. Um, that's uh, that's an interesting market. I, I I wouldn't want to say how long it will be, you know, around for. It, it you know, politically, obviously, it's a it's a hard place to to, to do business sometimes uh, with certain commodities. But even our Companies that we sell to in Japan, South Korea, uh, some of these places in Eastern Europe, they're coming on quite nicely. You know, you're seeing a more regular pattern and a more steady way of trading with them. And once you get to know somebody and uh, what their market requires in terms of uh, their regulation and such, it gets easier. And we're not, you know, we're, we're busy without as much as I want to sell into Europe because they're on the doorstep and you know, we want to sell to our European customers. Um, we, we just can't. And we've had to go looking elsewhere. And we have found plenty of business elsewhere. And, you know, we have some, um, we have some 
some projects in Russia, which also, if can be done correctly, potentially going to be a huge uh, market for us. Again, um, a very interesting place to, to start doing business, though, making those uh, connections and politically yeah. and, and business-wise, another a whole change in uh, in style for you. Mm. Yeah, it is. Um, but And their requirements, for, from, as you sort of go to each sort of, you know, corner of the world almost, they're... What they're after is obviously slightly different. The American market likes the, the very traditional side. Um, and the Russian side's more interested in the pipe, but they, they're interested in the rolling tobacco as well. Um, but again, doing stuff by hand, we're having to throttle back some of these orders because we, we just, they, they scare me when they come in. <laughs> and you think <laughs> that's going to take our team, you know, four months just doing nothing else for, for anyone or, or something. So, you know, but I think, Within that as well, we're we're relatively we have been exporting for a long, long time, but not on this scale. This has only been happening the last few years. So, so the team we've been learning a lot about customs in different countries, uh, how to get things there, um, and uh, I think it's it's definitely a big part of our future. Uh, we'll you know we're obviously never going to abandon the UK in terms of a market as long as we're allowed to operate. For the UK, but um, there's there is so much world out there. It would just be nice to have the freedom to trade with the European Union in a slightly more fluid way. I'm, um, I'm sure that things will will even themselves out once the initial. <clears throat> political ill will or maybe the the current you know, political masters uh, sort of move on um, and I then the next so. generation come through or, or the next elections come through really but um, so it seems like a very interesting time period for you obviously we've gone through through covid through opening you know your arms to the world not being able to trade directly to the eu but um you know, trying to bring it sort of all together the next three, six, 12 months. Do you have anything you're particularly focusing on? Are there going to be new areas of the business you're opening or is it just going to be about trying to catch up? Well, it's, it's a bit of catch up. Um, I think, I think it's more, not so much catch up, it's more dust settling. Um, you know, it's the aftermath of, of COVID and is everyone going to fall back into the, you know, the usual way of working and, and just that having that consistency. Yeah, I mean, we do, we do, we have some new systems that are going in, um, you know, more uh, sort of ERP type stuff that we're, that we're doing. Um, I think the next, for us, it's more about trying to meet this production requirement. So it's not even really just looking the next six to 12 months. It's looking at where we're going to go in the next probably three years. I think, and uh, there's there's a lot of a huge amount of development to do. We're doing a lot of the development in house ourselves as well, as well as outsourcing some of it. So we're we're still trying to bring the company up to date uh, in, in many ways. Not only obviously on a compliance basis, but just there's a lot of things in an old company like this, which in a more modern company, even that's only 50 years old or something, you would take for granted. Uh, and some of these processes and systems are, you know, that has never really been implemented here. Um, but we're just always wanting to make the customer service better, um, production a bit more efficient, um, and see if we can actually meet or get somewhere close to meeting the demand of of, of the sort of global market, really. Uh, 
thought, you know, ultimately it'd be nice to get a holiday at some point. <laughs> and I think, I think that right there is a, an amazing sort of overview of, of exactly what it is that, that, that you've been doing and, you know, a, a great way to sort of wrap up the interview, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be fantastic to be sort of following along with your story and following along with how you're going to improve these processes, look to continue trading, bring the, your, you know, um, company into the modern age while still harking back to that traditional style. Exactly. Um, and eventually, I hope you get the holiday. But um, Chris, <laughs> that was a, a great interview. Thank you ever so much for, for coming on the show well, today. And um, it's, it'll be great to catch up with you again in a few months. And um, Good. It'd be a know, pleasure. See, as you say, when the dust settles. Perfect. Great. Well, uh, thank you for, for having us on. It's, um, it's always good to get to sort of talk a bit about what, what we do. Um, and hopefully, I think it would be nice to think that there's also some insights that, you know, people uh, wouldn't normally get just from, you know, Facebook or anything else. Absolutely. Chris, thank you. Mm.